Okay, so we want to look at some uh, things about site selection. When we're looking for a uh, place, we don't always have a lot of choice, but it's nice to have it close to the garden, easy access to, uh, to, the, to the house where we can just uh, care for it well. We need to think about water. Um, if we need you're in an area where irrigation is especially necessary. And we want to think about the amount of sunshine that the area gets. Um, some of the um, fruiting crops, uh, they all need full sun. Some of the ones that are uh, the greens, some of them can handle partial shade. But um, it's generally necessary to have uh, an area that is full sun. And then we want to think about the, uh, the fertility of the area if we have a choice. And one of the things that I've found is that any soil can be improved. It can be, we worked in uh, the southern part of Utah where we just had pure sand for uh, nine years. And there we invested a lot in the soil and Steve will be dealing with um, steps to productive soil. But what I've found is that any soil can be improved. Uh, we had an area in Colorado that was right in front of the elementary school and it had a granite uh, shelf underneath it and granite gravel on top. And that area, the alfalfa never grew very high, only about six inches. But it was right in front of the elementary school and I wanted the kids to be able to look out and see their garden right there. So in the fall, I plastered it with uh, sections of alfalfa bales, you know, about one compression of the baler thick, tilled that in in the fall, and in the spring we planted it, and we had just a lush, fantastic garden. So that was really encouraging. Here you can see, just by observation, um, you can see some of that broom grass there the uh, yellowish grass. So that gives you an indication that the soil is quite acidic there and it will need some lime in order to bring it up to uh, proper pH. So, and here we can see just by observing the color of the soil, it can give you some uh, indication. Uh, I just got back from Colombia, South America where the soil in the uh, tropical uh, cloud forest area, it was about 7,000 feet, and the soil was very black and just everywhere, and uh, it, it was beautiful. Um, black doesn't always mean fertile. Um, we're living near Houston now, and 
there they have black clay and <laughs> it's very gummy and very hard to work when it's wet. Um, but here generally uh, you'll, you'll have, if it is black, that'll be your topsoil and as you get down you can see uh, the clay is red and um, here um, is we want to think about the slope also. Um, is it, is it going to be an area that is well drained? Um, so here it's uh, nice uh, and level. This actually had a very nice uh, loamy soil and uh, we could grow some great crops there. Chinese cabbage and other things like leeks that, uh, that took a lot of uh, oomph to keep them uh, growing well. And here you can see uh, just a nice slope. Uh, if it's toward the south, that's preferable. And, uh, and that way you can get into the garden earlier in the spring if it's uh, getting the um, sun, it's a south-facing slope, that will be ideal for early spring. You want to avoid areas that are wet. Um, it doesn't show up too great here on the picture, but a marshy spot there. Um, plants don't like wet feet, so you want to choose an area that that has uh, proper drainage or make provision to get the area drained. Even if you needed to put in some uh, drain tile, if you don't have too many choices and where you can move the garden to, you can put in some uh, perforated four inch drain uh, down deeper than where your tiller will be and drain the area so that you can still use a given spot. Okay, we're going to uh, go into garden planning. And I think, uh, did all of you get a, uh, a Johnny's uh, seed catalog? Uh, back on the table here, they also have uh, some other seed catalogs, the high mowing, um, the Seed Savers Exchange and Territorial Seed Company and Seven Springs Farm. So I really like the Johnny's Seed Catalog because it's kind of like a, uh, in many ways, like a gardener's encyclopedia. And if you open it up there, you'll see um, on any given page, you'll see in a, in a green box, um, the cultural um, factors for that, uh, for that crop. So it will give you um, the kind of pH uh, the, that the, the plant does well in, um, whether the, it likes things likes the soil to be acid or alkaline. Um, it will give you the potential diseases that 
will be a problem with that plant. Um, it will give you the potential pests. So like, you know, if you're uh, looking at the one on the cabbage family, you're gonna have potential problem with uh, the cabbage looper. And so um, it will help you to realize that you need some Dipel on hand to deal with that cabbage looper. Um, and then it will help you to know uh, what your what kind of harvest you can expect to get. Um, and uh, the average seed uh, seeding rate and uh, and also the temperature at which the the seeds will germinate. So how warm the soil has to be for the seed to germinate. Anyway, there's a lot of really helpful information there. So we'd like to encourage you, if you have a question, we really want to address your questions, but if you can uh, hold those to the end and we'll, we will get your questions though, okay? Um, the, and the time to, to do your, your garden planning is in, the, is in the winter when the snow's blowing um, or even in the fall when your mind is fresh from, uh, from the uh, last year's uh, trial and error things that you need to, uh, that you want to get, that you didn't have last year. Um, and so make your planning well in advance. And I like to, uh, for those that are just beginning and even uh, advanced uh, market gardeners, a plan is essential. And what I, I usually put it out on it, on graph paper, um, and there's many different um, plans you can make, but um, have a ha uh, lay it out so that you have it all out there. You want to have your um, your variety so that you want to plant. Um, you want to have. Uh, the date that you plan to plant it, and um, the and the the feet of row that you're going to be planting, that will help you then to calculate the number of seed, the amount of seed that you're going to need, and get your order in early, so that um, you'll have it when you need it. If we're planning to have perennials. We want to put them um, off to the side of our garden where um, they will not interfere with our annual plants. So like your strawberries, asparagus, um, blackberries or raspberries, um, plant, you want to have those, or comfrey, artichokes, 
you want to have them to the side so so they'll be out of your regular annual area and another thing that for those who are just starting uh, I'll if especially if I'm moving to a new area I like to find some local uh, seasoned gardener that I can gather information from and this is invaluable by doing that you can determine um, what your season schedule is going to be when the last uh, frost is in the spring generally and when the first frost may be in the fall so those are important uh, dates to know and with the weather changes that will fluctuate some um, but uh, you can also go to your county extension agent for your for your county county every every county in the states of the US have a uh, county agricultural uh, extension agent office and you can go there and they will generally have um, recommended planting dates and you can use those as a guideline as you're getting started and as uh, my brother will be sharing about season extension by using some of these other uh, approaches for uh, season extension we can push uh, push the limits but for what you plant in an area where you're not protecting it with plastic um, those recommendations will be uh, very helpful another thing that you'll want to uh, keep in mind is the spacing of your uh, plants there's some things that work very well in in beds and those would be like uh, any of your salad material beets um, lettuce kale uh, broccoli those type of things I generally place plant them in beds uh, 32 inches wide and then other things work well to have in uh, rows like the corn um, it it needs a, a spacing of like 36 inches 32 inches depends on what kind of uh, how you're going to cultivate between the rows if you are uh, cultivating it just with with a stirrup hoe or um, by hand then you can plant closer together uh, but if you're going to be using um, like a troy built then you need to consider how wide your machine is and uh, and then have a little bit of space uh, for the row so if I'm using a troy built I'll usually have the rows spaced at uh, 32 or 36 inches 
Um, then for melons and winter squash, um, they sprawl out and uh, you need to space your rows plenty wide because uh, they will sprawl out and to, and they need about, you'll need about eight feet between the rows on uh, winter squash and on watermelon and cantaloupe. On um, cucumbers, um, you can go with uh, just about four feet. The other thing that we want to uh, keep in mind is that in your garden planning is that some of your plants will go for the whole season. They're long season crops. That would be like your uh, tomatoes, eggplant, peppers, um, corn, and then we'll have some that are uh, shorter season. It would be like the, the salad material and like peas. So in, in your planning, you want to plan so that you kind of group the shorter season things together and that way you can follow it up with a successive planting that will uh, utilize that ground after that uh, is finished. And so in your, in your uh, planning before the season and in your ordering of the seed, you want to keep that in mind also. Okay, so uh, uh, here are some of the ways that we group the crops together um, by hardy, semi-hardy, tender, and very tender. And this would be uh, related to the time that we can plant them. So the, uh, the very hardy ones or the, the time how long they will go into the fall because um, the onions we can start very early. Um, we can set them out very early and they can handle uh, and peas, they can handle some frost. And uh, anyway, all the ones on the left side there, radish, spinach, lettuce, and carrots, they can handle a little bit of freezing. Um, and the semi-hardy, beets, broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, kale, potatoes, and Swiss chard, um, they can also take some frost, uh, but not real hard freezing. Um, they would need some protection on uh, if it's uh, freezing very hard. But they actually, many of these greens get tasting a little better with some frost. So uh, it, that, that's really nice. And then the tender ones, uh, cucumbers, green beans, summer squash, sweet corn, tomatoes, um, they, they can't tolerate frost. And the very tender ones, cantaloupe, lima beans, okra, 
soybeans, squash, sweet potatoes, and watermelon. Um, they need the soil to be nice and warm. And uh, eggplant, peppers, um, tomatoes, they need the soil to be nice and warm before you plant them. So I generally will start my garden uh, with the, the hardy and go to the tender and work my planting that way. Um, that way I can just keep working my way right across the garden. Um, what is a hard freeze? Well, uh, the, a hard freeze would be um, for the semi-hardy would be like um, down in the mid-twenties, yeah. Um, but they can easily take uh, just a light freeze, uh, you know, a few degrees below freezing, no problem at all. And in your garden planning, one of the things that we want to account, we want to look at is uh, rotating our crops so that um, for several reasons, we want to rotate them so that the same plant family will not be in the same place year after year. We want to do that um, for uh, disease control. Um, and so we want to have diversity, uh, botanical diversity. Um, we want to have, uh, we don't want to have the nightshade family in the same place year after year. That would be tomatoes, peppers, and eggplant because they have the same tendency, they have a tendency to the same diseases. So if we are planting them in the same place year after year, we're going to have a lot more disease problems. We want to plan so that we, we vary where we plant the different things because of their nutritional needs and because of pest and disease problems. And we want to alternate legumes and non-legumes. So the, the the varieties that are in the uh, bean family, peas and beans, um, will be soil builders. And then we have the rest of them that are not going to be uh, building our nitrogen levels. And long, long rotations are better than the short ones. And then it's a great benefit to have a year of rest. So we want to group crops that uh, like to grow together 
according to their soil nutrient demands. We want to group the botanical families because of the insect and disease problems. And um, as we were talking about uh, how we plant things in the beds, that will also influence our grouping of things together. So as far as the nutrient demands of the plants, we have um, heavy feeders on the left, which would be the asparagus, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, corn, cucumbers, eggplant, kale. So the big leafy things uh, are going to be, are the heavier feeders. They're going to take a greater quantity of nitrogen in order to do well. Um, and then we have um, winter squash, summer squash would be in that okra, pumpkins, uh, leeks, they and uh, so the nice big leafy things. Then you have the light feeders, beets, carrots, onions, parsnips, potatoes, radishes, rutabagas, sweet potatoes, Swiss chard, and turnips. Um, these don't qu require quite as much nitrogen and are able to do well. Then you have the soil builders, anything that is in the legume uh, category takes nitrogen out of the air and fixes it on the nodules uh, on the roots. And so by rotating these, the soil builders are able to fix nitrogen that the next year we follow with the ones that are the heavy feeders and then we follow that with the light feeders and then we come back to the soil builders. So this rotation works well to help keep your soil uh, built up. Another thing that Steve will be sharing is uh, interplanting with leguminous crops that will also, uh, like clover, that does wonders to help um, boost your nitrogen levels and you don't have a problem with, uh, with a lack of push in the heavy feeders then. Okay, yeah, on the rest year, um, what on your um, on the handouts that are in the website, um, and and we'll also have a slide on it here that shows the incorporation of the rest year. But oftentimes, what we'll do is two rotations of of this um, <coughs> soil builder followed by a heavy feeder, a light feeder, another rotation of soil builder, 
heavy feeder and light feeder, and then follow those two cycles with a rest year. By looking at the plant families, um, it can help you make decisions in regard to disease control, particularly. It's also nice in regard to pest control. If you have it all together, the plants that you will need to uh, spray or watch out for cabbage loopers, you have those all together. So um, we have the, um, the beets, the chard, and the spinach. They're all in the goosefoot family. Um, and then you have the daisy family, which are um, uh, chicory, dandelion, endive, lettuce, sunflowers. And then you have the cabbage family or the brassicas, which is broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, collards, um, kale, all of that family. They're considered the, the brassicas or the cabbage family. And then you have squash and cucumbers. Um, and then the, the grains, um, barley, corn, oats, rye, wheat. Um, and then the legumes, which would be Alfalfa, all your beans, clover, lupins, peanuts, peas, and soybeans. Then you have the lily family, which are your onions, garlic, leeks, chives, and then buckwheat, um, and the rose family, which would be your uh, brambles and strawberries and then the nightshade which is eggplant peppers petunias potatoes and tomatoes so this family in particular has uh, diseases that we need to break up the disease cycle and so we want to have them in the same, we want to not have them in the same place uh, year after year. So we want to uh, make as much of a gap between when they're in the same spot one time as when they're in there another time. So we want to have at least three years and it's better to have more time before you'll have the nightshade plants in the same spot again. Otherwise, you'll have a lot more uh, fusarium wilt and, and other problems. And then you have the umbellifer family, which are uh, parsley, uh, carrots, dill, and uh, turnips, they have the nice um, 
It's a nice flower that is like an umbrella, like the dill, you know. And uh, the hoverflies, they love to dance from one uh, umbrella for plant to the other. And they are a great friend of the gardener. So by um, be keeping in mind these plant families, it can help to guide you in, in, in your rotation, especially so you're not getting the um, nightshade in the same place uh, repeatedly. Okay. Um, here we have uh, one uh, layout. And when we're planting our sweet corn, we always want to have uh, four rows together um, so that it will help with the pollination. Um, when the wind blows the pollen, it will give, uh, if you have a four row block, then it will enable the ears to be properly pollinated so you won't have um, uh, blank spaces on your cob. Here uh, we can see the, the, some of the things that we're planting in rows um, there at the top. Uh, so at the opposite end from the sweet corn, we have squash, cucumbers, and uh, summer squash. Um, and then we have uh, two beds uh, that have the salad type material in them, um, followed with uh, two double rows of peas. Uh, I generally like to plant my peas in double rows. Uh, that way they will uh, you can have, if they're climbing peas, you can have a, a fence in the middle to support them. If you're in an area where it's very hot, though, I have found that growing them um, more densely will help to provide, they will help shade themselves and they can handle the heat better that way. Another thing that you can do is in the middle of the day, and I've done this uh, in southern Utah with the salad material and with peas, in the middle of the day from, say, um, 12 to 2, to run a, uh, a misting sprinkler and or you could even have it so that it comes on more often um, for short periods of time. And that evaporation will greatly cool the plants and can help them to tolerate the heat. So uh, here we, uh, down on the next, uh, rows, we see the cabbage family, 
grouped together. Um, and then um, beans, so they'd be your um, soil builders. And then uh, potatoes, uh, tomatoes, uh, which would be the nightshade family grouped together. So um, here we can see what we would want to do is the following year, we would move um, group five down to uh, section six, and we would move section four down to section five. So we would just move it into the next, uh, move it down one. And you would be having your heavy feeders following the soil builders and the light feeders following the uh, heavy feeders, and then repeat with the soil builder. Okay? And then here you can see in this plan, on the seventh year, you, you, would, um, you would have a rest year. The other thing we can see here is that um, where the sweet corn and the squash are, you can um, you can um, also swap that uh, end for end so that um, so that you're not having a um, you're not having the uh, sweet corn in the same place um, as, as the year before. And here's a statement from uh, Fundamentals of Christian Education. It says, there is much mourning over the unproductive soil when if men would read the Old Testament scriptures, they would see that the Lord knew much better than they in regard to the proper treatment of the land. After being cultivated for several years and giving her treasure to the possession of man, portions of the land should be allowed to rest and then the crops should be changed. So here it really helps us to understand the value of letting that soil rest as a means of making it more productive. And that wouldn't necessarily have to be all of your land at the same time, but by means of rotation, um, being able to have that rest time. Okay, are there, are there any questions? Yes? What if you have a 60 by 120 lot in which your house is? You have only a couple areas that you can grow things in, and we like tomatoes. <laughs> mm -hmm. How long can you put tomatoes in one place? <laughs> yeah. Um, what if you have a very limited space, and you're wanting, you love tomatoes, you're wanting to grow uh, tomatoes again and again? Um, Still, if at all possible, you need to rotate it. Um, 
one of the ways that um, that is sometimes used in uh, greenhouses where they're growing a lot of tomatoes is to to tarp the area so that they're using um, the sun to help uh, increase the heat and by that means um, diminish the the disease um, that is carried from one year to the next. We've done that. Okay. Good. Yeah. Um, and we've also found that growing uh, clover is just a great way to really um, energize the soil with a lot of, of uh, activity that that helps uh, to minimize your disease problems. So that might be something to consider in some of the other ground. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, on your year of rest, did you put a cover crop in there? We usually do. Um, you know, this, if you look in nature, it's always trying to cover the ground, even if it's with weeds. And so we will generally uh, grow um, clover and, uh, and then um, that will just transform the, the soil texture and it will boost your nitrogen levels. Is there a particular clover that you prefer? There's so many different kinds. Um, and some of them do fix a little bit more nitrogen than others. Um, so I usually just look at the, um, the, the amount of nitrogen that they fix and try to get ones that will fix a greater amount. So you're saying if you're growing very intensively and you, uh, how do you deal with the rotation? Um, yeah, if you're growing it in pots, then you would um, you would want to be careful about um, maintaining the same soil, especially when you're growing nightshade. But for most of the others, um, it's not a problem. You can just uh, incorporate more uh, soil amendments that will boost your nitrogen, uh, like. Uh, alfalfa pellets or uh, compost and you can use the same soil but if you're using that soil repeatedly with nightshade you'll have p big problems. There was the comment that uh, it, they have a greenhouse where they grow tomatoes year after year and to deal with some of the disease potential they just take the top three inches off and replace that with compost, and it has seemed to work well uh, for them. Um, and he was commenting, could uh, that be done during the, the rest year? Um, I'm, I believe it could be. Um, uh, sure. I, I generally have wanted to grow something that's going to really uh, boost the microbial activity in the soil and uh, also boost the nitrogen levels.
modify what? Just a little the sand. Oh, uh huh. Okay. Um, good question. Uh, my brother Steve, he's going to be dealing with uh, steps to developing productive soil. And so he'll, he'll really cover that well, um, how to get that sand or clay uh, up to uh, par so it's uh, productive. Yeah. Uh, yes, that uh, can be done um, either with grow light. The question was, uh, can you grow uh, food, quant significant quantity of food indoors and would it be healthy? Um, you can just use uh, soil that, you've, uh, that you have put together um, and by using um, grow lights or even just regular fluorescent lights, um, you, can, you can grow microgreens. Um, we're not going to be covering microgreens in this uh, seminar, but there's another one that's especially focusing on microgreens. So you can set up a, um, a shelf, shelving, uh, with these flats of microgreens. Uh, sure, if you have uh, a window, uh, but a, just having a window is not going to be sufficient uh, unless it's a greenhouse uh, type setting. And so you will need some additional light, uh, otherwise they'll be very leggy. Yeah. Uh, yes, the question is uh, the advantages or disadvantages of drip versus uh, sprinkler. Um, drip irrigation uh, really helps minimize your disease uh, problems in some of the crops where, uh, especially in parts of the country where uh, we have high humidity and, and uh, very high temperatures. Um, and sprinkler irrigate, it, when we use drip irrigation, it will minimize our disease problems like powdery mildew and, and some other things. With um, sprinkler irrigation, uh, it's nice for the salad material it will help keep it cool and it, it, uh, they love having the, the moisture on their leaves. Um, especially if you live in a desert area, I found it worked really well in southern Utah. Um, the other uh, plant family that can be especially problematic uh, is the nightshades if you're if you're using sprinkler irrigation for them, it will tend to really foster the diseases that we have in the tomatoes, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't have a lot of uh, good scientific uh, answer to that. Um, you know, it's just a decision that you have to make on, on your own, but... Um, we, I think the goal would be to work toward growing them 
from scratch yourself. It's a great experience. And um, then you can also have the varieties that you want and you can know uh, exactly how they were grown. Um, I know that there are some, uh, you know, compromises that, that I wouldn't make. And uh, so there again, just, I think growing our own food is, is the best way to go, if at all possible. But yes. Oh. Thank you. So the question was, um, should, should we be concerned about um, the, the way that food uh, labeled as organic uh, is being treated? And I think that you know, it, is, it is a concern. Right, and what about the nutrition level um, in that food? Yes, I, I think that um, you can grow f food organically uh, by, the, by the guidelines and it still not be uh, packed with nutrition. Okay, um, any other questions? So it's time for a break and uh, we'll 15 minutes till our next class. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.